Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, You've heard it before, but I will repeat it. Today is History Day in the making. Uh, Never before has a former president of the United States, much less the leading candidate for one party's nomination for the White House, uh, been charged with criminal offenses in a federal case. And of course, this afternoon at around three o'clock, That's exactly what's going to happen in the next step of the indictment against Donald Trump. Uh, He'll appear in court, and uh, we're going to talk about what what will happen in that courtroom. We'll talk about the case itself. We'll talk about the political implications of the case. We'll talk about how it might affect what's happening here in Georgia politically with Fonnie Willis's ongoing investigation and much more with a wonderful panel. I'm so thrilled that today we have with us, um, first, uh, Charles Bullock, Professor Charles Bullock, a professor of political science at uh, the University of Georgia. And Chuck, you get the first introduction by way of seniority, if nothing else, but there's more <laughs> reason to do it than that. How are you, Chuck? Howdy, Chuck, this is historic. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> I've been around, lived longer than anybody else in this panel, and I've never seen it before, and um, even if I went back to 1787, I wouldn't have seen it before. So it is unique, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much uh, for uh, being here. Your colleague from the University of Georgia, Professor Audrey Haynes, a professor of political science at UGA, is also with us. Audrey, welcome. Good morning. How are you, Bill? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thanks for being here. And from Emory University, we have political science professor and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, Andra Gillespie. Andra, uh, an extraordinary day that we're facing this afternoon. Yes, it is. And it's sobering. So, you know, as much as my interest is peaked as a political scientist, as an American citizen, we need to sort of mark how serious and how troubling this day is. I'm really glad you said that. This is a day for Americans to think about what is happening. Thank you for making that point. Mm -hmm. And um, we're also joined today by a professor of law at Emory University, Fred Smith. And Fred, I introduced you last. Um, First of all, thank you for being here. But I introduced you last because I'd like to start with you, if I may. Trump goes into court at around 3 o'clock this afternoon. Can you tell us what we think, that, what is the standard procedure for the booking, uh, what, what he'll go through before he enters the courtroom, and then what happens when he does appear in front of the magistrate judge? Yeah, so this is uh, also sometimes known as a first appearance. Um, so this is uh, his opportunity to let the court know where, whether he pleads guilty or not guilty and for the court to let him know uh, formally what the charges are uh, against him. Um, in a typical setting, this would also be the moment in which we would learn whether or not um, 
he would be held subject to bond or whether he wouldn't be eligible for bond and so forth. But I think in this particular unique context, I don't think there's any expectation that um, that he won't be able to be released on his own recognizance. since there's no reason to believe that uh, that he won't appear to later proceedings or that they won't be able to find him. Uh, I don't think there's a, that risk exists in this context. Um, and uh, and so, you know, the court in future proceedings will have to figure out, um, you know, the timing uh, of the eventual trial, assuming that he does plead um, not guilty and assuming that he doesn't at some point plea. And there too, although in over 90% of cases, people do plead guilty to at least some offense here too, um, in this unique context, it's hard to imagine that happening uh, either. Um, Audrey, presumably um, he will be fingerprinted and have a mug mugshot taken. There were questions when he appeared in New York in front of uh, the in, in the case at Alvin Bragg, the DA up there brought against him, whether that was going to take place. But presumably that is specifically going to happen uh, uh, today. Yes. And, you know, we won't see any of that. Now, um, these days they electronically fingerprint in most places. Mm. And, um, you know, the best we could probably do in terms of pictures will be to see the ones that artificial intelligence generate, which have been all over the web anyhow and are quite entertaining. Um, but, you know, today he's probably going to be brought in, uh, you know, in some way that that uh, gives him some privacy. I mean, that will be something that they will do. So, um, you know, the public won't do that. And um, it has been, um, I just saw this yesterday, and it was on Fox News this morning, that the, the press is asked to be able to bring in uh, recording or electronic devices um, so that they can uh, record some of the activities and those have been banned. Um, so they will not be able to bring in any, any, their own phones, any electronic devices, and certainly there won't be any audio at all. Um, Chuck, that's not really unusual in federal court. Uh, certainly cameras have, are not uh, uh, allowed in uh, federal court. I, I, I assume that applies for audio devices as well as, although I must admit, I don't know that for a fact, but it isn't unusual to not be allowed to record in a federal courtroom. This is nothing special about Donald Trump. No, he's being treated like any other criminal defendant would be, and any other kind of trial in federal court, for that matter. Audrey, let me, I mean, Andra, let me, let me, if you don't mind, start by asking you this, and then I'll give the rest of the panel a chance to weigh in. We've already seen, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, Donald Trump appear in a courtroom as a defendant in a criminal trial, um, the, uh, the payoff, the alleged payoff of uh, uh, Stormy Daniels led to the charges filed in New York. Why does this case, and, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong, why does this case in this day feel so different from that, so much more momentous than that? <clears throat> Well, it, it's different for a number of reasons. One, this is a federal trial as opposed to a local tr a state trial. So, um, you know, that, that 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 is part of the difference, right? It's happening at a different level of government. The um, alleged crimes are more serious um, and they involve and implicate national security, um, which not only has legal ramifications for the merits of this case and sort of whether or not you could get a conviction, but also should have political implications, right? Because it does speak to temperament it does speak to 
comportment in office and fitness for office. Um, and, uh, you know, if convicted, the penalties would be more severe. So, uh, you know, this is a, a very, very serious case. It is also, you know, important and serious because this is another case where this is a case where if President Trump were reelected to office, he could have the potential to try to uh, pardon himself. And I think that that would actually open up a whole nother legal can of worms about why that's possible. But, you know, with this happening on the federal level, like he couldn't pardon himself in New York, he could, in theory, at least try to pardon himself or could definitely pardon Walt Malta, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in in New York. So, I mean, just the, just the stakes of this one are just are just way more serious. Chuck? Yeah. Um, also, something that's different here is that there can be no notion that this is a prosecution in which the prosecutor has political ambitions. And there were some questions about that. And if you have a local DA, yeah, local DAs get elected. They might be trying to build a political record, but a political pro- federal prosecutor, no, you, you, you don't run for that position. Something else, uh, I think everyone expects that this is not going to be a speedy trial, although that's what the federal government is asking for. So indeed, if Trump drags this out, and if he should be elected president, then probably he would not be tried until the end of that term. So this is <laughs> may not have to worry about pardoning himself. He simply would put everything on hold for another four years. Um, Audrey, and then or Fred, then Audrey. Fred, you're muted. Fred, we don't hear you. But part of, part of what's also striking about this is where um, these charges have been brought, that they're being brought in the Southern District of Florida. Um, and the reason that's important is that I think it um, it kind of undermines the notion that this is a political prosecution. They could have brought this in D.C., where he initially took the documents. They could have brought this in New Jersey, where some of this conduct took place. Uh, and the jury pools in a New Jersey or in a D.C. are very different than a jury pool in uh, in Florida. And they're in front of a judge who uh, has shown in the past um, really something, I'm, I'm trying to find better words for it, but I can't, something that looks deep sympathy uh, to uh, the arguments that Trump has made so far, even when um, the law was quite a distance from uh, from, from where Trump's arguments were. Um, so, uh, nonetheless, that's the that's the venue that they picked, um, and I think that too speaks to um, how confident um, the prosecutors are about the facts here, um, and they they really are striking. I think they're far beyond what almost anyone would have imagined until that indictment came out. And, and Audrey, I'd love for you to jump before you ju- before you jump in. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to make sure that our listeners know what Fred was saying. Aline Cannon will be the is the initial judge assigned to this case she was a trump appointee to the federal court district court and you will recall i think everyone that um it was it was canon who to the surprise of most of the legal profession uh, w- w- uh agreed to the trump request um uh to um have a special uh uh, uh magistrate i forget what's the term fred a special master um examine the documents that were being turned over by the Trump folks before they could be put in the hands of DOJ. She was overruled in very harsh terms by the appeals court on that. And and Audrey, please now pick up. But that's the reason there's some concern about her being assigned to this case. No, that's a great segue, because um, the fact that 
uh, going back to that, the 11th Circuit, which, you know, that is the Circuit Court of Appeals, which Georgia is in. It's made up of Florida and Alabama and Georgia. They really um, wrote very strongly about how um, deferential she was with really no, no merit to that deference that was given. So, you know, not a legal argument. But let's talk about that uh, that tri that potential trial. You know, Chuck mentioned that the federal court is asking for a speedy trial. And, you know, so many Americans really don't know very much about the trial process unless they've been on jury duty or, you know, they've been a part of one. Rarely are trials super speedy. I mean, speedy means months from now because you have to give the opposition side a chance to do something, you know, called discovery and vet witnesses. But with a judge in this case, um, if you think about the potential that Cannon could have on the nature of the hearing, it's quite amazing. And I should say, everyone should know that she was chosen at random. Trump got really lucky. Today, he's going to be before a magistrate court, but she will take on a lot of the responsibilities of, you know, making decisions like pretrial motions. I'm married to a lawyer and I hear, you know, him talking about treatment pre-trial motions, motions to dismiss, motions that have to do with jury selection and which uh, types of what, what things are going to not consider at all. Uh, Fred was right. I mean, Miami, in, in this case, too, Miami has gone much redder over the past few years that, I mean, on one side, um, the the if, if, and I do want to encourage your viewers to read the indictment. 37 charges mm. written very, very clearly. But um, the judge in this case can really do a lot. And there's even a rule that would allow her to acquit the president at some point. It's rarely used. Um, I forget the number of the rule. It's like rule 29 or something like that. But the, the judge in this case has a lot of bandwidth to do a lot of things that could be potentially beneficial to the defense. So for the time being, I mean, in terms of discussing the case, I think we all, we should probably presume that Judge Cannon is going to run this case uh, fairly. She, she's going to be under a lot of pressure to do that and under a microscope after what happened with her ruling on the special master. But Audrey, you anticipated something uh, that I want to do briefly. And I'm going to ask all of you to indulge me for just a couple of minutes um, Andra, you said this is a day for Americans to look at um, with, it's very seriously, it's a somber day. I want to read to you just the beginning of the indictment, because most people probably have not actually read it. So indulge me for just a couple of minutes. Here's, uh, not even picking up with the first uh, part of the indictment, which describes his years in the White House and the fact that he gathered a great deal of information as president. And here's where it picks up. Over the course of his presidency, Trump gathered newspapers, press clippings, letters, notes, cards, photographs, official documents, and other materials in cardboard boxes that he kept in the White House. Among the materials Trump stored in his boxes were hundreds of classified documents. The classified documents Trump stored in his boxes included information regarding defense and weapon capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. 
The unauthorized disclosure of these classified documents could put at risk the national security of the United States, foreign relations, the safety of the United States military, and human sources, and the continued viability of sensitive intelligence collection methods. As he departed the White House, Trump caused scores of boxes, many of which contained classified documents, to be transported to the Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida, where he maintained his residency. Trump was not authorized to possess or retain these classified documents. It goes on to say that Mar-a-Lago was an active social club where tens of thousands of people uh, who were members and guests visited with some regularity. The Mar-a-Lago Club, the indictment says, was not an authorized location for the storage, possession, review, display, or discussion of classified documents. Nevertheless, Trump stored his boxes containing classified documents in various locations, including in a ballroom, a bathroom and shower, an office space, his bedroom, and a storage room. On two occasions in 2021, Trump showed classified documents to others. Now, I'm not going to go on and read more from that because we can discuss it. But I think, Fred, just that introduction to this indictment makes clear how serious this case is. That's right. You have the fact that they were taken in the first place um, and and that this, the nature of these documents, whether you call them classified or unclassified, these are very serious documents that go to the heart of the nation's national security. You have the fact that once uh, he got them there, that he disclo- disclosed them, um, sometimes rather cavalierly. Um, and then you also have um, that when the United States tried to get these documents back, um, that he obstructed, um, that he that he tried to get his attorneys to lie uh, about whether the documents were there. He intentionally, it appears, based on the indictment, was hiding uh, documents, asking uh, the staff and ultimately asking an attorney um, to pluck the documents um, that were classified so that, the, so that the federal government didn't know that he, in fact, had them. Um, and so the, the taking of the documents, the disclosing of the documents, and then the, the effort, um, the concerted effort to ensure that the United States didn't get these documents back, that is why he was indicted. So, Chuck, let me read a little bit more. Yes, we now say here here is the taking of classified documents that he had no right to and perhaps exposing them to people who did not have clearance to be aware of what was going on in those documents. Then there's the obstruction uh, part of this. And here's what the indictment says, Chuck, about that. Trump endeavored to obstruct the FBI and grand jury investigations into the documents and where they were, what he had, and conceal his continued retention of classified documents by, among other things, A, suggesting his attorney falsely represent to the FBI and grand jury that Trump did not have documents called for by the grand jury subpoena, B, directing defendant Walt Nauda to move boxes of documents to conceal them from Trump's attorney, the FBI and the grand jury, C, suggesting that his attorney hide or destroy documents called for by the grand jury subpoena, D, providing the FBI and grand jury just some of the documents while claiming he was cooperating fully. And there's more to that, Chuck. There's the obstruction piece of all this. Right. And Donald 
Trump would not be appearing in federal court today, and we would not be discussing this if when he was requested to return the documents, he says, oh, oh, my bad, sure, I'll turn them back in. And that's what we saw President Biden do, what we saw Vice President Pence do. So it's, you know, it's not surprising to me anyway that, you know, as you're clearing out your office, uh, you, you take some things maybe that have been there and you shouldn't have taken them. And uh, once discovered, if you return them, that's not a problem. Problem is, and this is compounded by Trump's own personality, which is fairly unstable. He ran a chaotic operation in the White House. Uh, he has a large ego. He likes to be able to brag and show things off. And so here he is trotting out these materials. Hey, look what I've got. Yeah, you'll find this kind of interesting. And then another element, I think people mm. talked about, and I don't remember the exact specifics, probably someone else on the panel will, but at some point, uh, since Trump went to Mar-a-Lago. There was a, a foreign woman who was on the grounds there who shouldn't have been on the grounds. And there was some kind of suspicion about what is she doing here? Well, you know, and to spin out a conspiracy theory, sure, someone like that could have gotten onto the grounds there and wandered into the ballroom and starts poking around. And who knows what that person could have maybe pulled out of one of these boxes when no one's looking. So that's also very troubling. Apparently, Andre, the... Uh, one of the things the prosecution will attempt to prove here is that there were at least two Chinese nationalists who were at Mar-a-Lago at some point who could have possibly seen some of these secure documents. Andre, just your overall thoughts when we when you when you hear the language of this indictment. Well, there are a lot of things, you know, in the indictment where it talks about the conspiracy. And so this is where Walt Nada kind of comes into play. Um Nara comes back, says, we didn't get everything that we're supposed to get back. Are you sure you mm -hmm. have everything? You hear the conversation, you see the conversation between Trump and the lawyers where he's like, we could just lie. And then when it, it's very clear that Evan Corcoran is not going to play ball, he tells Watanada to move some of the stuff so that basically Corcoran can go through and attest to the stuff that he sees and then make a false attestation because he doesn't know that there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been hidden in the background. And then just the interplay between Trump and Nada for the phone conversation and then the text conversation and then either Tiffany or Ivanka because it looks like it was a female it was a daughter of, of the president writing back like right afterwards like this is why like this case looks as strong as it does right now while even some conservatives are like you got to take this seriously like there's some stuff there there's the national security part of you know, there's some people who are like, you can't like run all over uh, Mar-a-Lago, like without sort of, you know, being, you know, without any type of supervision. But the fact of the matter remains is that there are people who are going to have access to the business center, who are going to have access to a bathroom, who don't have security clearances and shouldn't be with those documents, even if 10,000 people can't necessarily get to them. And then I just have to say, as, as, as an academic, and as somebody who has like personal stuff that could potentially be archived one day, if anybody cared about it in my house, Right. But just as, as in general, as somebody who has worked with archives before and is friends with the archivists at the Rose Library at, at Edinburgh University and colleagues, just this is a terrible way to keep documents, especially ones that are important. You are putting them in places where they're going to be subjected to humidity. Um, so you're already in Florida where that's bad. Then you're going to stick it in a bathroom to compound it. And you're going to be putting it sort of in places where it could be easily lost or where there's risk of fire damage and you don't have the redundancy in the system to try to mitigate against that. 
that for all kinds of reasons. If Donald Trump was holding on to this for his ego, or if he thought he could shake down the government to get more money for an archive, this was all just really bad. And it reflects poorly on his judgment. And this is something where people should consider putting partisanship aside to say that this actually reflects poorly on the character of a president and speaks to his fitness to hold this office. Audrey, one last comment before we take a break. Well, I was going to say um, one of the things that's most important is how people perceive this. Anyone who reads it, thinks about it for more than a minute is going to realize how serious this is. And there was an ABC Ipsos poll that just came out. And part of it was if you look at whether people in the in the general public think that this is a serious situation. 91% of Democrats do, 63% of independents do, but only 38% of Republicans do. And when people talk about this being political, probably the most political thing is that Republicans are unwilling to come out and strongly say that what ex-President Trump did was absolutely wrong and dangerous. I mean, that is one of the political elements. And we'll see that in fact, um, what have we seen from some of the presidential candidates who are running? You know, what have we seen from a lot of the leaders in Congress? Either their mom, um, some of them have spoken out, but most of them are still defending the president, saying this is a, as the script goes, a witch hunt. When in reality, if Trump probably had retired, had done everything that he needed to do, like return documents, this wouldn't have happened. Um, we should point out before we go to the break that really underlying all of this is a very basic um, need to understand that these documents are not Donald Trump's. They belong mm -hmm. to the United States of America. They are documents that were gathered during his presidency that he has no right to somehow think he Owns And in, when it comes down to it, that's what's behind just about everything in this entire case. One last note, um, Brett Stevens, a very level-headed conservative commentator, opinion writer for the New York Times this morning, made a very darkly humorous joke about one aspect of this, the fact that the documents, some of them were found in a bathroom where with a shower. He's, and uh, Stevens wrote... That is uh, probably the uh, uh, new example of what it means to be anal retentive. <laughs> Let's, on that note, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back in a minute, and I do want to pick up where Audrey left off with this group and talk about the political implications of all of this. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Fred Smith, Andre Gillespie, Chuck Bullock, and Audrey Haynes join me for today's Political Rewind. All right, so let's look into the um, political implications of all of this. Um, Audrey mentioned the ABC News Ipsos poll, which was released yesterday. And um, 
she gave you the breakdown in terms of partisan uh, uh, response. But the overall numbers are very interesting to me. Um, Andra, uh, f- about 48% of the people that were polled said, yes, they think that Donald Trump should face criminal charges uh, over all of that's involved in this case. Um, but an almost equal number said it's politically motivated. That in itself is one of the aspects of this that is troubling and that you kind of referred to when you uh, made your first remarks in the show today. So sure, our country is divided on this um, and it's not surprising that the division kind of uh, falls, not neatly, but it does fall uh, along partisan lines. Um, You know, one of the things I would say about that question is to present that dichotomy of it's politically motivated and Trump should be, you know, indicted is probably not the best dichotomy. So this is another case where I'm going to sort of quibble on the question wording, because I think that there might be some people who think, well, both. Um, And so I might have asked those questions separately just to kind of tease out uh, those answers a little bit. Um, You know, one of the things that is interesting from a political standpoint, looking ahead to 2024, is that if we look at the partisan breakdown, um, you know, um, you uh, Democrats are pretty unanimous, are nearly unanimous in, in in their idea that Trump should be prosecuted for this. Um, you have a third of Republicans, a little more than a third of Republicans, saying that you know this should pro- that a trial should go forward and that he should be prosecuted for this. Um, and uh, independents are breaking kind of towards prosecution. And so that actually says something about what this could look like in battleground states, particularly in a general election. So if Trump were the nominee um, and more damning information were to come out and people were to become more convinced, right, you know, the independents might not be on Trump's side in this particular one. And so I think, that you know, that's an important thing to consider, even though, you know, more than a year away from the next election, it's really hard to say lots could change. And I think the other thing in terms of like this initial reaction action from ABC. While I appreciate this data so that I have something to talk about on the show, the reality is, is that people are going to learn more about the case over time and they're going to update. So they're going to have to field other news outlets are going to have to field surveys in the coming weeks as, as the information settles, as people begin to see more of what's going on. And actually, even as people are, are taking their cues from um, from whatever media sources that they are. So the idea that you've had people like Bill Barr and, um, you know, Alan Dershowitz kind of come out and say, hey, this isn't quite a witch hunt here. You got to take this seriously. You know, we'll see sort of whether or not they actually end up bringing other people along with this. So I'd say we are at the beginning of sort of really assessing how the public is going to see this information. A- absolutely. We've laid down a marker that can change. Chuck? Yeah, I don't know there was polling on this because there was a lot less polling back then, but we may have gotten or might have gotten similar kinds of responses had they been polling on Watergate. Yeah, uh, there should be a trial, but yeah, a lot of uh, Republicans at that point also thought that it was probably politically motivated. So what is the, what, again, trying to draw upon that experience, you know, that experience, Republicans stood very much behind President Nixon until there was a smoking gun, until the tapes came out. And at that point, it was flipped and he was he was done. It may be that Trump has a greater hold on his followers than, than Richard Nixon did. Uh, so what could happen? Well, the erosion here that I think we're going to see primarily is going to likely be among independents. Republicans can't win just with Republican votes. Democrats can't win nationwide just with Democratic votes. So what happens to the independents? 
Are they going to break away from this? Now, we may well see, I think we're already beginning to see, slight bits of erosion on the Republican side. So Nikki Haley made a comment yesterday, which was less than her fulsome support of Trump, which she'd been giving before. Uh, we see uh, former Attorney General Barr also kind of raising some concerns. So these Republicans, along with people like Chris Christie, are laying down the markers that if in time some other Republicans become more concerned about this and about the future of the Republican Party, because, again, they can look back and see what happened to the GOP in 1974, which was a disaster for the party. You know, once, indeed, uh, independence began to break with uh, with Democrats and vote against Republicans. So at some point, I think we may begin to see some Republicans, particularly in marginal districts, beginning to say, you know, my own self-preservation uh, is going to prompt me to become critical and to want to distance myself from this president before the ship goes down. Of the, uh, I think, now 10 Republicans in the presidential race, uh, the only two who have come out really critical of of Trump are uh, Chris Christie, who is full given full throated uh, a criticism of uh, Trump, and Asa Hutchinson, who's called on him to drop out. Although Hutchinson says, "Well, the charges may be politically motivated, but nevertheless, he shouldn't be in the race with this hanging over his head." Audrey, what's interesting, unless I've missed it, we've heard very little from Georgia. Uh, uh, members of Congress, the legislature. I mean, over the weekend, the uh, uh, attendees at the Georgia Republican Convention were very outspoken when Trump came to uh, uh, give his speech there. They think this is all political. But we haven't heard a whole lot, I don't think, from our congressional delegation on either side. I, I may be wrong about that. I haven't seen much. Well, Bill, I would probably say that they're probably too busy and a little distracted by all of the things that are going on in Congress right now, because you have an implosion of the Republican Party and this division that's going on. In fact, yesterday, you know that there was all kinds of brokering of of potential deals with Speaker McCarthy about, you know, shared power. And um, right in the center of that are a number of our Georgia members, uh, especially um, Andrew Clyde, right? So, um, you know, on the other side, too, I think that uh, we're going to see people, as Chuck mentioned, you know, this is this is all how it goes. Some tentative discussions like, yes, it's politically motivated. You know, they shouldn't, they're following the talking points about weaponizing the, you know, the DOJ and so on. But as Andra said, there is a learning curve. They're watching the polls. They're watching the politics. They're watching, you know, what people are saying when they call uh, their office about this. And so it will unfold over time. The interesting thing is that um, we actually saw an uptick in some of the polling based on the ABC Ipsos poll, just, you know, within the margin of error, 2% from April to June with Trump garnering support. But I'm going to mm. I'm going to add one thing. We know from our studies that Republicans, especially diehard activist types, um, get limited news sources. They watch Fox. You know, they they are only getting one view. In fact, I, I logged on to Fox this morning on their main um, website, and the first thing you saw was a transgender story. Uh, you know, Trump, which is dominating the news across every legacy media, mainstream media, 
and so on was towards the bottom. They're covering it, but there's no flashy picture. Um, instead, they led with a transgender uh, person um, taking a picture of their breasts uh, in the White House um, uh, behind with the White House behind them, with Biden uh, pictured very prominently. Um, I should point out, Fred, I, I, when I said I oh, haven't heard a lot, Marjorie Taylor Greene was very quick to, to step in and, and condemn these, this uh, political prosecution, as she called it. On the other hand, what's interesting to me, Fred, is Democrats are largely keeping their powder dry. Uh, obviously, uh, President Biden is saying nothing uh, because he's already being accused of being behind this criminal uh, prosecution, and it does him no good to say anything at all. But other Democrats recognize the same thing, that for them to come out and attack uh, Trump now that these charges are out and to say how outrageous it all is doesn't help their cause at all. It just furthers this notion it's a political prosecution. Sure, kind of, and it encourages people to retreat more to their camps. Um, and so one does have to be thoughtful about that. I mean, it's also the case that in the past, when, uh, you know, when very serious things have come out about President Trump, the pattern so far in the past has been there's this moment of outrage. Uh, and, uh, and then so many other things enter the picture that one almost forgets. I mean, even now, you have not one, but two indictments. You might have a third, and then and at a certain point, it sort of just kind of goes into the same box as just noise, right? And so the question is, will this follow a different pattern than all of those others before? Um, and you know, there's reason to believe that's possible, right? But um, but in the past, that's not really how uh, how it's gone. I mean, I agree that um, that part of what will change is that people will learn more. Um, and in, in terms of why there's so much sharp partisanship right now. Um, you know, what aboutism is a hell of a drug? Okay, so like, and it, and and it's right now people are kind of w working overtime to kind of put this these facts into the same category as things that they've seen before. But um, but I think that the more that people learn, um, the harder it is going to be for for them to do that, and the the less credible for at least some people, um, Trump's um, claims where he's trying to discredit. Um, this prosecution, the less credible that's going to be. And one final thing I'll, I'll say, I've heard a lot about what the implications will be um, when it comes to a general election. Um, I do just want to say, uh, in, implicit in that is that he will be the nominee. And I think that is probably right, right? Because, you know, even, even if, a, if a third of Republicans, or even if, frankly, if 60% of Republicans um, strongly believe that, um, that, that this is that this is deeply troubling and that he shouldn't be the president. As long as he maintains a core 33 to 40% who are willing to come out for him in state after state, um, if there's a lot of Republicans running and they're splitting up the rest, we've seen how that's gone. Like that's what happened in 2016, right? And so um, and so to the extent that this causes some Republicans to really just deepen their, their retreat to the Trump camp and, and become even stronger and more loyal to him, um, this could help him in a, a primary, even if it, of course, would uh, hurt him in a general. Um, Chuck and then Andre, and what underlies what Fred is saying is the fact that Republicans have, a, for the most part, winner-take-all uh, primary uh, uh, policy so that you only need 30% of the vote if there are eight or nine people also on the ballot 
uh, to get all the uh, delegates from that state. That was the key to Trump's success in 2016 and um, could very well be the key to his success in 2024. Yes, Chuck? Absolutely, yes. Trump does not get a majority vote in any of those Republican primaries until he gets to New York, which was very late in the season. That was along in April, mid-April of 2016. So, yeah, the Republican uh, arrangement is stacked in favor of the plurality winner. Uh, and you know, there's, a, there's something to be said for majoritarianism, and that does not operate among Republicans. So, yeah, Trump is, is still in very good shape because he has his cadre of people who are not going to change their minds. It doesn't matter what new information comes out. They're locked in. So we're really you know, talking about those folks as we talk about this case and how it may impact uh, public opinion or politics. Andra? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I 100% agree. And so when we're talking about the people who could shift, we there is this hardcore group that's not going to be swayed. Um, and they're going to engage in behavior. That's when they're going to seek out information that confirms what they already believe. And then two, they are going to dismiss and figure out how to um, derogate the sources of, of, of folks who are saying things that are contrary to their particular worldview. Um, and so, and what we see is, and I think the big question here is for the rest of the Republican field is, how do you respond to that? There response so far has been to try to lean in as much as possible to see if you can present yourself as an acceptable alternative um, without actually providing a stark contrast. And so I think it becomes a question of for uh, Republicans who recognize that this is a problem, are they actually going to be willing to expend political capital to say, this is wrong and I'm going to stand up to it, even if the 30% won't go along with me, in the hopes that one of us can consolidate the others. And I think for that other group, I think it also becomes a larger question of, do they coordinate amongst themselves and decide, all right, which one is the most viable of us and the rest of us agree to get out? And so there, there, there's a, a lot of ego um, and a lot of power seeking that's going on here. And that is, uh, you know, not necessarily, it's for the, you know, they're doing it for the good of the individual candidate, not necessarily for the good of the party or the American people writ large. All right. We got to get to our final break of the show. Um, we're going to have a lot more to say about this in the days and weeks ahead, obviously. Uh, the uh, uh, court appearance takes place around three this afternoon. Tonight, Trump is expected to make a speech uh, from Mar-a-Lago, and obviously we'll talk about all that on the show tomorrow. Yeah, Audrey Haynes uh, gesturing that he's going to be raising some money off of all this tonight. Um, When we come back, though, let's turn to the U.S. Supreme Court decision on an Alabama redistricting case and what its impact could be on racial gerrymandering, not just in Georgia, but across the country. This is Political Rewind. Late last week, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling that some people found very surprising. They sided with uh, litigants who said that when the state of Alabama had a chance to draw two districts with majority uh, black voters, they didn't. They gerrymandered so that it it diluted the power of black voters. And that case has implications far beyond uh, Alabama. Fred, why don't you give us a very quick uh, take on what the, why the court ruled the way it did, and then we got to turn to the expert on all this, Chuck Bullock, for how he thinks it's going to affect a case that's now pending in Georgia. Sure. So initially, there were two uh, important components to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, one was Section Two, which was at issue in this case. The other was something called Section Five, which required uh, primarily Southern states to pre-clear redistricting with the Department of Justice. 
the Supreme Court overturned Section 5 about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, what Chief Justice Roberts said uh, at the time in that opinion and in an earlier opinion is that, quote, things have changed in the South. Um, the question then, that, that sort of left just Section 2. Um, and what Section 2 blocks is um, techniques that have the effect um, of discriminating against um, racial minorities and, uh, and language minorities. Uh, and this can happen primarily through two mechanisms. One's what's called cracking, and the other is what's called packing. Cracking is when you take a minority group and you split them all into dis different districts so that they don't have a say in any of those districts. Packing is when you surgically and strategically make sure that almost every person in that group is in a district uh, in order to minimize their impact on other districts. And both of those techniques under Section 2 are impermissible. Um, the court found that when it came to um, to, to Alabama, that um, that when the, the African American voters were subject to um, to vote dilution based on how the districts were drawn, that there was an opportunity um, to draw another district in which uh, African Americans would have had an opportunity to uh, elect uh, the candidate of um, their choice. This logic only makes sense in a context, I should say expressly, in a context in which there is highly racialized, polar, racially polarized voting, right? Uh, and so Alabama is one such place where the vast majority of, of white individuals vote for one candidate, the vast majority of black candidates vote for an, another candidate. Um, and in, in that, that piece of the puzzle um, helps us understand the logic of section two. And Chuck, we have a case pending in Georgia right now along the same lines that Georgia gerrymandered the districts in such a way that it diluted African-American voting power here. Absolutely, yes. And uh, the Georgia case also has fairly broad implications, and it doesn't deal just with the congressional districts, but also charges have been raised with regard to state legislative districts. So uh, Steve Jones, who is handling this case, I think has indicated already that he thought at the preliminary hearing that uh, probably the elements of the Section 2 need that uh, that uh, Fred just mentioned had been proven. And so he withheld a judgment because, again, the earlier version of this Alabama case had been put on hold by the Supreme Court last year. We said, well, it's too close to the election. We really can't rule. So Steve Jones puts his aside and says, OK, well, I'll wait and see what the Supreme Court does. Well, the Supreme Court has now said. And so Judge Jones has said, OK, I want to hear new pleadings from both sides on this. So it looks like he is getting ready to decide fairly quickly. And if he does so, then the legislature, either when it comes into session in January or maybe in a special session, will have to make some changes, have to redraw some maps. And that's always politically difficult. That's why my book subtitled uh, Redistricting the Most Political Activity in America. And so, yeah, politics will play out here. There'll be blood on the floor. There'll be winners and losers very clearly. And indeed, when we get down to those state legislative districts, there'll probably be some people who are not going to have seats. And there probably won't the congressional level will be one endangered uh, Republican. A uh, good chance that a person or one of the Republican members may, may still have a district to run in, but it's not going to be as red a district as elected them in 2022 if they compete in 2024. Andre, you got to admire not only what he had to say, but that he got a plug for one of his books in as well. Andre, your take on all of this. <laughs> sure. I mean, so, you know, the, the challenge that we're dealing with is that the Supreme Court has no problem with partisan gerrymandering. And so oftentimes these maps are drawn with this eye towards, well, we just did this because of party. 
Um, it's hard in the South to disentangle race from party just because of the racial polarization and party identification and voting behavior. Um, and that is especially true in Alabama, as Fred stated. So just to kind of put this into uh, uh, to put this into context, about 26 percent of Alabama voters um, in, in, in 2020 were Democrats and 22 percent of, uh, of, of voters in the state were African-American and 90 percent of that 22 percent voted for uh, for Doug Jones over Tommy Tuberville. And so it's not a perfect correlation, but you see this really high correlation of, 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 of Blacks who are voting Democratic. So you can't disentangle that, well, we were just doing this to hurt Democrats without it hurting Black people um, in the state. And, and the challenge in, in, in Georgia is we have some of those same elements, but we have a more diverse um, populace. So it's more diverse racially. It's also more diverse in terms of partisanship. So we've got a more of a, a more multiracial democratic coalition, most of whom are actually protected classes and would fall under section two, but not everybody does. And so when we think about, you know, which district it is that, that Chuck was talking about, he's talking about district six, right? It becomes a question of, well, when you're moving, you know, African-Americans into a democratic district, that's actually a multiracial district. Is that the same? as trying to deny what was going to be a majority, you know, a, a black influence district in Alabama. Um, Audrey, uh, before people celebrate too much that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, a Trump appointee, voted with the majority, we should point out that there are observers of the court who believe that this was a way to cushion the blow that we're going to see come up when they rule that that race cannot be used in any way as a criteria for admissions to universities. So there's this sense that perhaps the justices ruled the way they did. It was easier to make this decision when they know the criticism they're going to get for the next one. That may be the case. Um, I'll also add, um, given what we've been talking about today, uh, especially for your listeners, that all these things really matter. That, you know, one of the things about America is that we've often been held to um, be that principled shining light where, you know, the mm. principles of what we're founded on matter, justice for all and all of those things that you hear all the time. But if people aren't really paying attention and, and thinking about these issues and responding to them, you know, with their own honesty and integrity, we're going to lose that. I mean, that's one of the things. What what do we stand for? So whenever I hear this conversation like we're having and we talk about it in terms of politics, but you always go back to why it matters. It matters um, to, to a great extent for not only us, but, you know, for the world we live in. Audrey, you just bookended what uh, this whole conversation, Andres started us off with exactly that same thinking. Um, we're going to look at a Trump trial. Um, can we look at it as Americans concerned about the future of our democracy? And you bookended by talking about the same thing in terms of how we uh, make assure that all Americans have equal access uh, to the vote. So, I mean, that really is the theme of this entire show today. We're out of time. I want to say I love all of you for doing uh, Political Rewind today. It was a wonderful <laughs> conversation. Audrey Haynes, Fred Smith, Andre Gillespie, Charles Bullock, thank you so much. Back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Naggett. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody.